Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 16 says this, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look, ask for the ancient paths where the good way, shout good, come on, shout good, where the good way is, walk in it. So don't just look for the good path, but he says walk in it. And if you walk in it, if you walk in the good path, you'll find rest for your souls. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40 is gonna be our text for today. So Jeremiah 6, 16, if you're a guest with us today, is our anchor verse. It holds this whole series together. It's what we've been focusing on. And then we kind of jump into these topical approaches week in and week out within the, within the framework of this series. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40 says this. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage at Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt, ever shout donkey, donkey. tied there, <laughs> on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. That's pretty awesome right there. In other words, the Bible's telling us that Jesus is about to steal a donkey. <laughs> and if they ask why, just say, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? So I, like, I'm not joking around. They were literally hijacking a donkey. The Lord needs it, they said. <laughs> so apparently the guy gave it to him. That's all you had to say is the Lord needs it. All right, take the donkey. <laughs> then they brought it to Jesus and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the ground, now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. We're gonna get nitty gritty into this. There's this worship service, so I want you to get this picture. Jesus is on a donkey, all of his Friends and disciples in the crowd are spreading clothes on the ground and other areas of the gospel would tell us that they would put palm leaves, palm branches on the ground and they are shouting. Everybody shout, shout. shout. So they're shouting. So everybody knows that shouting is loud, right? right? How many of you know I'm not shouting right now? How many of you know that I'm shouting right now? <laughs> Shouting's loud. And they were doing it joyfully. Right. And then the Pharisees went at them so teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, Jesus said this, and I love this part right here. I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. So today as we continue on in our series, Saving Sacred, I wanna to speak to the subject, friends with benefits. Friends with benefits. As we celebrate Palm Sunday and look at the sacred practice of worship. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word today. I pray that it is not my words, but it's that that it's your words. God, we take this moment to reflect upon your truth. It's your truth that sets us free. And so I thank you right now that in your presence, we find freedom. And so I pray that your word would shine light on the dark places of our hearts and our minds, <clears throat> that it would do the, the deep work in our souls that we need it to. And as we celebrate Palm Sunday today, I pray that the rocks would not have to cry out because there is a shout of praise in this house. We love you, we worship you, and we honor you. Come on, and everybody shouted. Amen. Come on, can we give Jesus some praise right now? 
Eric and I met in fifth grade, long, long time ago, in kids' church. Started dating in fifth grade, if that was even a possibility. We do not condone that in our kids' church as our kids' director comes in. <laughs> Some of you parents are like, get him out now, get him out. Our families have known each other for a long time. Her and I have known each other for a really long time, since, since fifth grade. Uh, we started dating in junior high school, and then we broke up, and then we started dating in high school, and then we broke up, and that was just ninth grade. Then we started dating again in 10th grade. Every year between ninth grade and 12th grade, we dated, broke up, dated, broke up, dated, broke up. And then there was a little stint somewhere in there, I believe it was junior, junior year, senior year, that we didn't date, we were friends with benefits. Some of you know what friends with benefits are. This is like, this is pre-Jesus, okay, in our lives. Do as I say, not as I did to the teens in here online. Friends with benefits. It's an interesting place to find a relational moment. Because friends with benefits, if we're honest, it's, it's all the things that we want out of a relationship with no commitment. Come on, somebody. No, no actual like collateral in the relationship. Friends with benefits, I wanna submit to us today, even though this is not a dating uh, message, friends with benefits is the most selfish type of relationship we could actually engage in. It's two people extracting from the other person what they want. That's a selfish place to live. So without getting into the worship side of this, if you are in a friends with benefit relationship, just a heads up, okay. (laughs) And just so we're clear, I don't recommend nor advocate for this type of relationship as it's extremely unhealthy in all honesty, extremely selfish. But here's what I do wanna say today. Many of us approach God with the same type of mindset and application. We're simply desiring to be friends with benefits. I wanna submit to us today that When worship becomes a central part and expression of our faith, we are taking a stand against the pull towards spiritual superficiality. Friends with benefits. Or more formally, what I call cultural Christianity. So what's cultural Christianity? Lots of definitions before we get into the practical aspect today. Will you hang with me? We're gonna do some some definitions and we're gonna do a history lesson and then we're gonna get into the practical applications about this. Simply put, cultural Christianity is the assimilation of certain aspects of religious life that seem beneficiary and aid in social identification and belonging. In other words, you can tick the box on Facebook. Cultural Christianity is a slippery slope often leading to the rejection of orthodoxy. Now, for definition's sake, we'll define orthodoxy as sound teaching according to traditional biblical views while elevating preferential aspects of orthopraxy. Orthopraxy are the behaviors, trends, and practices of both the historical and the modern church. Understanding this is of the utmost importance when it comes to the issue of worship because how we define our religious belief and faith will define the practical outworking of it in our lives, in this case, how we worship. So here's what I'm submitting to us today. If we are engaged 
in a friends with benefits type of relationship with God, we will have a tendency to relegate worship to the corner. Because at the end of the day, worship is not a friends with benefits application because there's something that worship causes us to move into and that is intimacy. And intimacy does not exist within the framework of friends with benefits. Is anybody with me this morning? If my faith is simply the product of cultural Christianity, then I will feel completely comfortable within the bounds of that relationship to exercise preferential treatment of certain aspects of what we would call church life, worship being one of those. However, if my faith is the product of a deeply rooted and orthodox belief system, then I am persuaded that my worship is not about preference, but rather a commanded response to my creator and savior. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm just getting wound up. We're gonna get, we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. Revelation 4.11. Revelation 4.11. Our Lord and God, you are worthy. Every shout Worthy. worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. (laughs) We worship not because it's something that you do in church. We worship our Lord and God because you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Why does he get our worship? Because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So we worship as a response of something that was created by way of a creator and we worship because we understand that the totality of who I am is supported by his word. So I worship. What I'm trying to get us to understand is that worship is not a choice. <laughs> and some of us, it's a choice. Because God is friends with benefits. In other words, worship is either a manufactured social and experiential aspect of our church, or it is the automatic and commanded response of creation to the creator. This is why Jesus would say, so I'm gonna prove it now. We know that it's a response from creation to creator because he says, if you were to not worship, the stones would cry out. Is anybody with me this morning? Okay, so let's hold all that intention as we work through some much needed biblical history concerning worship. We're gonna go from Old Testament to New Testament in just a few minutes. There were about 1,500 years from the days of Abraham to the time of Ezra, 1900 to 450 BC, that saw significant changes in the form of worship in ancient Israel. Abraham, the wandering nomad, built altars and offered sacrifices wherever God appeared to him. In Moses' time, the tabernacle served as a portable sanctuary, it's like portable church nowadays, for the Israelite tribes journeying through the wilderness. Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem that lasted more than three centuries until its destruction by the Babylonians in 586 BC. When the the Jews returned from exile, they built a new temple, which was later renovated and enlarged by Herod the Great, though all the temple buildings would eventually be destroyed by the Romans AD 70. The foundations remain still today. Jews still pray by the Western Wall called the Wailing Wall. So these are real places, all right? So this is not like fairy tale land we're talking about. These are actual spots where worship took place. Worship in the Old Testament was characterized by ritual, outward expressions, 
sacrifices, celebrations, great festivals, observances of the law. The reason I feel out of breath right now is because I'm excited to get to the practical part. Sorry, like, I'm hyping myself up on the inside right now. I am stoked. Woo! All right, worship in the New Testament. So you slide from Old Testament to New Testament. There would be a shift. The shift would move from physical to spiritual. The Jews had become far too dependent on a physical place, the temple for their worship. It became about the place. Come on, somebody rather than the person. When Jesus came on the scene, he proclaimed that he himself was the temple of God. In other words, worship would no longer be in a place, but in a person, through Christ and his spirit. The worshipers could come directly to God. It's good news. So he would say in John 14, verses six through seven, Jesus said to them, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So Jesus brought it back to him. No longer was it about the show, the place, the grandeur of it all. It became what it had always been intended to be, a gesture of faith, love, hope in the true God. It's in John 4 that Jesus would dig deeper into this when speaking to a Samaritan woman and he would say this. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He was talking about two locational aspects of worship. Y'all still with me this morning? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, Jesus, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. W.A. Elwell, co-writer of the Tyndale Bible Dictionary, writes this, true worship required a people to contact God, the spirit, in their spirit, as well as the people who knew the truth. New Testament worship must be in spirit and in truth. Human beings possess a human spirit, the nature of which corresponds to God's nature, which is spirit. Therefore, people can have fellowship with God and worship God in the same sphere that God exists in. C.S. Lewis would write this, it is in the process of being worshiped that God communicates his presence to men. And when I say men, I'm saying human, mankind. So we have a shift, moving from Old Testament about the place, moving into New Testament, it's about the person. Jesus comes on scene, and now, as Jesus is riding on a donkey, having palm branches and coats placed in front of him, ultimately heading into Holy Week, which would eventually bring him to his crucifixion, then resurrection, then ascension, you see all of a sudden this automatic response from the people following him, recognizing that they are in the presence of God himself, and they would begin to worship, and Jesus would let them know, you cannot be quiet, you must keep a sound in your mouth, you must keep worship in your soul, it must be on your hands, it must be on your lips, it must be in your mind's eye, why? Because if you go silent, my creation will cry out, because because worship is what the created does to the creator. And that's where we find ourselves right now in the New Testament. Here's the truth that I want to undergird the rest of our time together today concerning the sacred path of worship. Here it is. Worship is not an optional addition to our faith. It is the relational condition of our faith. We are commanded to worship. But in our Western American churches, that idea is very difficult for us because we have a commandment 
within our hearts and our minds that says, thou shalt not command me to do anything. Come on, somebody. Right, like it rages in us. Some of us like, well, we kick back on, what do you mean I'm commanded? Yeah, we're commanded to worship. This isn't a heaven or hell thing. This isn't a more love or less love thing. It's just the commanded reality of those who are relationally engaged with God. We don't have an option. Worship is a part of it. See, when we operate in a friends with benefits mindset, we're no longer engaged in an organic relationship between creator and creation, but rather a transactional relationship where I simply get what I want out of the deal without any true commitment. Friends with benefits faith avoids the places and the spaces of intimacy and required response. The sacred path of worship is where we find ourselves actively engaged in giving honor, praise, worth, adoration, submission, vocal allegiance, and physical acknowledgement of God. It is in fact what we are called to do and designed for. I want you to look around this room right now. Every single one of us are designed, designed to be instruments of worship. Some of us sound better than others. (laughs) Some of the rhythm sections are on and some of them are off. But we are all designed to worship. This is what the prophet Isaiah would say in Isaiah 43, 16 through to 21. I just want to highlight verse 21 for the sake of time. This is what he says. The people I formed for myself will declare my praise. Which brings us to the practical application of this message today. I want to take a look at a few truths that are vital to our understanding of worship and its application in our lives and in our faith journey. Okay, is there some faith in the room today? This is why I'm hyped up. I gave you the background. Gave you my thesis. We did a little quick history lesson. Now we're going to push it practically. And for some of us, it's it's going to poke and prod some things. But I want you to just lean in to this message today. That was really just the intro, okay? A couple of things I want us to, to grab a hold of about worship. Here's the first, first truth. Worship is an invitation out of loneliness. What I'm trying to do for our church today is help us develop a strong understanding, a, the, the, the worship, the, the theology of worship, if you will, for our church, why we do what we do, because I want our worship, and, 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 and I don't need it, but we as a church need our worship to go a whole lot deeper in our understanding besides it's just something that's a part of our service. We come in, we shake hands, we say hi, we drink our coffee, we do 20 minutes of song, praise, and worship, he talks for a while, depending on what the day is, and then we get out of here, okay? I need us to understand what our worship is. Worship is an invitation out of loneliness, Colossians 3, 15 through 16, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule in your hearts. And be thankful. Come on, somebody. (laughs) Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom teaching. That's what we're going to talk about in the next series. And admonishing one another through, here it is, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. 
This is where the corporate aspect of worship comes into focus. And the Bible is very clear on this, that worship is, of course, an individual experience and can be done anywhere and everywhere, on mountaintops and by lakes and in campsites and in cars, for sure. However, the Bible is very clear that there is a corporate reality to our worship that is not to be ignored nor avoided. And this is not a message to get you to come to church. This is a message to help us understand the power of corporate worship. Because some of us walked in here isolated today. Some of us walked in here lonely today. And it was in the corporate form of worship that all of a sudden I realized I'm a part of a bigger body. I'm a part of a bigger thing. And when we worship together, that is where unity takes place. Oh, come on, somebody, worship transcends lines of politics and race and money and stations of here, there, and everywhere. we got to understand that when the body worships together, God is praised. I'm going to get you all there eventually. Corporate worship is an expression of unity that is held together by the bonds of love that is only provided to us in and through Jesus. We're talking about ancient practices that we're invited into in order to experience the fullness that God has promised us in and through his son Jesus. Worship, when done corporately, unites all of us under the banner of one name, Jesus. Much of the personal isolation and social loneliness that we feel is not because we're not around people, but because the substance of our interactions are waning. Worship is the corporate intimacy needed to establish personal worth. Without worship, church as we know it becomes a glorified TED Talk. So we gotta stop inviting people to church. If worship is op- optional, don't invite people to church. Stop saying it. Hey, why don't you come to the well and hear this really cool TED talk about spiritual things? <laughs> he yells a lot, gets crazy, and I thought he was met- wearing a Metallica shirt, but it ended up being Optimist. <laughs> Some of- <laughs> Without worship, church as we know it becomes a glorified TED Talk based around spiritual ideas, not the transformational body to which we've been adopted and grafted into and through the sacrifice of Jesus, to which we are now called, this is what, this is what we need to understand, we are now called brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. In short, Paul Anderson would say this, worship that is grounded in tradition and responsive to the spirit can remind people, especially lonely people, who feel isolated in their troubles that there is a community larger than themselves with whom they can pray and be comforted. Number two, the second truth is worship. Worship is the establishment of spiritual intimacy. For some of us right now, this is blowing our minds because we thought that, that worship was just singing. Oh, it's so much more. 
Worship is the establishment of spiritual intimacy. Watch what Psalm 139, 23 through 24 says. Search me. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. This word search that's used here in the Hebrew means to examine, investigate, search for, to search through, explore, to examine thoroughly, to be searched out, to be found out, to be ascertained, to be examined, to search out and seek out. We're asking God to know us and for us to know him. But for many of us here today, this is probably the point where we get a bit squirmy because intimacy as a whole, let alone with God, is a difficult proposition for us. Now we have to remember that intimacy is not physical. Physicality is a part of it for sure. It can be part of intimacy, but it's not the totality of it. For many of us, intimacy is difficult because we have a flawed and shallow view of intimacy. We grew up learning and experiencing that intimacy was a transactional deal. It was one dimensional and it was used to simply get what we want or for others to get what they wanted from us. So then we bring that idea into our faith journey and it becomes just another thing that we reject because we do not know nor have seen a proper, a proper application of it naturally. But I want us to hear this truth right here. We have to remember that just because the world that we live in broke something doesn't mean that the thing itself is bad and that goes for intimacy with God. Just because the world broke our view of intimacy doesn't mean that intimacy with God is bad because at the end of the day, it is with the perfect one. And so when I engage in worship, I am stepping out of a broken understanding of intimacy and I am now standing before my creator saying, search me, oh God, know me, make sure there's no wayward way in me because I want to be the person that you've called me to be, but it only happens in intimacy. Into me, see. Here's the truth, intimacy with God will cause us to face ourselves. And in the same turn, intimacy with God will cause us to face God. Ralph Martin writes that the worship of God and the act of praise is, and I quote, dialogue involving the interchange of the divine initiative and the human response. Worship pulsates with a two-beat rhythm expressed simply as we come to God and God comes to us, as Pastor Erica was saying today. This is the two-step. We come to God, God comes to us. I don't know how to two-step, but you get, <laughs> you get the point. This is presence and encounter. Worship is an encounter with God needed by man in order to experience the relational truths and touch of God's grace and love. And we've all but lost that. This is actually why, I wanna, I'm gonna just be really honest in church today. This is why, as we walked through 2020, we watched pastors and churches make sure that we weren't closed. It wasn't because we just wanted to keep the building open. There is a dynamic that got missed by the people of God. A corporate dynamic, a reality where God shows up, this two-step between his creation and himself coming and being and experiencing God. And we miss that, oh sure, lots of us said, well we're doing it online, come on. Yeah. 
Come on, is anybody with me today? I'm not advocating for not being safe, and I'm not saying that what we've just experienced, there's not tr- I'm not saying any one of those things, okay? What I am saying, though, is we do not have the option when it comes to this thing called worship. See, when my faith in God is just study, my relationship is cerebral. When it's just service, my relationship is conditional. When it's just prayer, my relationship is emotional. I have to have all of it come together so that it's the totality of relationship. And worship is included. Now I'm gonna push it even harder. (laughs) Number three. Worship is the process, here it is, of looking outside of ourselves. Colossians 3, one through four. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your mind on things that are above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In his book, Worship is Pastoral Care, Paul Anderson writes this, the paradox is that if we design, listen to what he says, if we design worship to meet people's needs, we're less likely to help them because we are leaving them in their self-oriented state. True worship, where giving to God is more important than getting, is the only worship that heals people of the tyranny of self. Worship is the process of looking outside of ourselves. Ultimately, worship is the aggressive dismantling of our personal idols. An idol, author and writer Tim Keller would tell us is this, a functional savior. Why do we lie or fail to love or break our promises or live selfishly? Of course, the general answer is because we are weak and sinful, but the specific answer is that there is something besides Jesus that we feel we must have to be happy, something that is more important to our heart than God, something that is enslaving our heart through inordinate desires. The key to change and even to self-understanding is therefore to identify the idols of our heart. And in and through worship, we dismantle them because we are looking and stepping outside of ourselves. Once again, Paul Anderson will help us out with the significant truth as he writes, we recognize that worship is divine invitation and human response. It can be the means of unlocking people from their personal moods. You ever been in worship before? You came in grumpy, right? Because the kids and the husband or the wife and the job and stuff, I don't know, show up to church today. A greeter better not say hi to me. <laughs> Signs. Here's your sign. Oh, they got bubbles today. Cute. <laughs> so we walk in, sit in our seat. He better not preach for 45 minutes today. Oh, it's time to stand. Oh, time to clap. They realize there's a lot of words in this song. What rhythm are they on? Are they even on rhythm or am I off rhythm? Why are you singing? Oh, slow song. Yep, there it is. One fast, two slow every week. Every week, at least online, can get a cinnamon roll. 
Oh, that's it. Spirit, lead me. Oh, he's definitely not leading me right now. Huh. That's all I got for you today, God, half-mast, half-mast. And there's somewhere in the transaction of submission. Spirit, lead me. Take that deep breath, realizing that it wasn't change that came by way of something that God did, but it was changed by way of what I gave to God. Mm. Worship. This is why worship is not an intentional, is, is more than just an intentional engagement. engagement. It's a whole body exercise. And listen, the Bible offers to us very pointed expressions of worship, all of which aid in the healing of tyranny of self. This is why Hebrews would call it a sacrifice of praise. One author said it like this, worship, because it focuses outward, can bring a healthy corrective reality to narcissism. And listen to this, one cannot truly worship and be fixated on oneself. See, worship causes us to look outside of ourselves by way of physical and vocal engagement. And for many of us, this is the most difficult aspect of worship, but it's a vital part of worship and it's explicitly expressed by way of scripture. We are called by way of scripture to worship with awe. Worship includes trust, worship includes praise, worship includes thanksgiving, worship includes joy, worship includes the confession of Jesus as Lord, worship includes confession of sin, worship includes the reading of God's word, worship includes music and song, worship includes dance. And there is scripture after scripture after scripture, we can throw these up another time for you, but for the sake of time I won't, why? Worship, when we give physical engagement and it causes us to get outside of ourselves. So when it comes to worship, <laughs> when it comes to worship, God did not ask how we feel about it. He did not ask what was comfortable for us. He did not ask us if we have rhythm or not. He did not ask us if we have a good voice. He did not ask the he did not ask David for propriety. God did not ask Paul and Silas for formality. And he did not ask Moses for politeness. He did not ask Joshua and the children of Israel for silence. He did not ask Peter for secrecy. And he did not ask the disciples for etiquette. He asked people for praise. He asked for clapping. He asked for singing. He asked for shouting. He asked for dancing. He asked for bowing. He asked for weeping. He asked for cymbals and drums and harps and lyres. Guitars and pianos, trumpets and basses. He asked for passion and reflection. He asked for a sweet smelling sacrifice. Come on, anybody thankful for Jesus? Oh, is there a praise in the church today? Oh, come on, can you get on your feet? Can we worship him? Oh, he asked for some stuff from this creation. Oh, it's not optional. Come on, let's put our hands. Come on, can we praise his name? Don't sit down. Don't sit down. He asked for 
A sacrifice of praise. We don't get to come in here and critique the songs. Well, it's just not my personality. I'm not a clapper. It doesn't matter. I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm trying to get us to understand what the Bible says. It doesn't matter whether you're a clapper or not. Or I'm not an exuberant person. It doesn't matter. He took that into full account when he created you. Well, I'm not an extrovert like you are, Jason, so I'm gonna remain silent. Uh Uh-uh, you don't get to remain silent. Because we have to look out, that worship is looking outside of myself. I may be an introvert, but my praise still has to include capital. It still has to include praise. It still has to include shouting. It doesn't matter what we believe we are. Why? Because the world created what we believe that we are now, and many of us have ignored who he's actually created us to be. So my worship is actually coming from a response of who I was originally created to be, not what the world's put on me by way of personality and thought processes and music style. We're gonna do it with gospel. We're gonna do it with rock. We're gonna do it with hip hop. We're gonna do it with all kinds. We're gonna do it with cellos and violins. We will not do it with country. That's a sin. Sorry, I'm actually starting to like country. That's, that's the truth. Yeah, I know, right? Listen, I need us to understand this church because we do not have the option to be a quiet church. We do not have the option to be a church that is preferential towards slow worship and not fast. Worship is praise. Some of us gotta get good at this. Why do they clap so much around here? It's because it's praise. When God does something good, we clap. And yet some of us will still refuse it. It's it's all the way through here. Scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture. This is why when Jesus got on a donkey, started coats and palm branches. Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest. And here's the truth. Yes, is worship reflective? We have those moments. And so there's some for now, like, oh, finally a reflective moment. And we reflect. But when we show up 10 minutes late to church so that we can avoid the worship aspect of it, I just need us to check our hearts for a second. Because worship's not about us. That's what we need to understand. That moment at the beginning of service is not because some of us in here like music. Hey, how do we fill church time? Put a cool band together and have them entertain us for 20 minutes. No. It's worship. So we have drums and they get loud sometimes because this little plastic thing over here (laughs) doesn't contain it. Oh well. And it gets low in here because of this guy right here. But for some of us, oh man, there's just this thing where it's like, oh, 
It's an emotional space and it's a physical space. It's the totality of who we are. And some of us are singing and some of us are crying and some of us are shouting and some of us are jumping. And here's the thing about it is that when you're really experiencing the presence of God, we have to understand that no faculty of self is actually gonna be able to be held back because it's, uh, it's us, it's creation responding to creator. Men in the house today, can I tell you that the strongest man you will ever be is a man not of pride, but is a man of submission. When we have men who are willing to bow to the God of the universe, oh, I'll tell you, that's a force to be reckoned with. That's why we don't really do men's ministry around here because I feel like men's ministry, can I just rant for a second? You're all standing right now. It's all right. Worship service is going to be long in heaven. Okay, so that's why we don't do men's ministry because I feel like men's ministry is about like don't look at porn and don't do stupid things and be a nice person and everything like that. And I just don't want, those are great things. We need to make sure that we focus on that. But sometimes we need to get back to the basics. And the basics is this. Men who are passionate about Jesus above everything else. So it's funny is the women clap and the guys are like, ah. So what you're saying is I have to clap? Yeah, because you'll do it for Tom Brady. I have watched grown men do weird things in the name of praising another man. Like full on, like, oh, did you see that throw? Guys, they get up, like, do you see that? Oh my gosh, that was amazing. Did you see that? They're shaking their kids. Oh! Then we get in church and you're like, oh, no, I'm a mature man. That game did not show any maturity. Your shirt came off at one point. That got weird. Worship is the product of salvation. Now, I'm gonna explain this point. Those of us in the room today who may be guests or you've been kicking the tires of faith and you, you have yet to say yes to God, I understand why our worship would be timid. Because worship is the response to salvation. It's like Pastor Erica said, when I know what I've been saved from, I've got no other option to worship. <laughs> when I know what Jesus has done, I have no, I got no other option because I used to be here but now he's got me over here and while it's not perfect and while it doesn't always work all the time the way that I want it to, I need to know that my God is good and he's working in me. So 1 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 9 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because his great mercy has given us new birth into not a dead hope, Come on, somebody, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is already to be revealed in the last time. And watch what you do. You rejoice in this. Even that, even though for a short while, if it's necessary, you suffer. Grief in various ways. Come on, who suffered this year? We've been through some suffering. 
so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, in glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Oh, come on, church. Is there a praise?